Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're going to begin at 39.22, Parshat Pikudei. Yes, 39.32 is where we're going to start. Thus was completed all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The Israelites did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses with the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its planks, its bars, its posts, and its sockets, the covering of tanned ram skins, the covering of dolphin skins, and the curtain for the screen, the ark of the pact and its poles and the cover, the table and all its utensils, and the bread of display the pure lampstand, its lamps, lamps in due order, and all its fittings, and the oil for lighting, the altar of gold, the oil for anointing, the aromatic incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the copper altar with its copper grating, its poles and all its utensils, and the labor and its stand, the hangings of the enclosure, its post and its sockets, the screen for the gate of the enclosure, its cords and its pegs, all the furnishings for the service of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the service vestments for officiating in the sanctuary, the sacral vestments of Aaron the priest, and the vestments of his sons for priestly service. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the Israelites had done all the work. And when Moses saw that they had performed all the tasks as the Lord had commanded, so they had done, Moses blessed them. All right. We got the instructions to do this. Then at the beginning of Pekudei, Pekudei actually means um, inventory. So we do now at our Parsha, it says, Elu Pekudei HaMishkan. These are the, uh, this is the inventory of the Mishkan, which were drawn up at Moshe's bidding. Uh, Itamar, son of Aaron, the priest, is the one in charge of doing the inventory. And it's brought to Moshe. So everything is brought to Moshe to do an accounting, if you will, of every single thing that was made. Uh, it was very, very expensive. Right? This was the most expensive project that, that they had. Um, you'll notice they, they beat uh, gold over rocks. It's an Egyptian process, and they um, slice it very thin to make thread. So, so these garments actually had real gold woven into them. Um, and so, I mean, it, it, and remember we talked about how expensive purple dye was? Incredibly expensive, which is why it's the color of royalty. Only royalty really could afford purple dye. You might could afford a purple little bit of a trim if you were really wealthy, but a garment that was purple was fabulous wealth. Um, so much so that purple dye was sometimes used as uh, currency. You, you don't know where the purple dye comes from, do you? Yes. Because Mickey Bienenfeld gives me the gift of biblical archaeology review when he's done with them. <laughs> and so I read an article about the purple dye um, that came from a certain kind of a marine snail. That's the amount of, uh, think of squid ink, the, uh, the amount of purple, uh, of liquid that comes from each one of them. 
and I'm, I'm sometimes I'm like, if I, I wish, if I could have my choice about things that stick in my brain, mm-hmm. I, I, right? I, ha, I have so much useless information in here, and then I'm like, this is one of the numbers I wanted to remember: how many tons of snails it took to even do a trim. Right. So, I mean, it's that expensive. Uh, tons of them to make a, a trim. So a garment would have been. A ten million dollar house. Like I mean, it was it was truly outrageously expensive. So, uh, so when we talk about this stuff, we're not talking about oh they had a nice little tent that they set up and a little grill, right? That this is a massive building project requiring incredible amounts of their wealth, which, if you recall, they just acquired. <laughs> so you take a bunch of slaves. Anybody here know somebody who grew up in the Depression? Or grew up in another time, a time right after war, or a time of, you know, scarcity, right? Your relationship to wealth, once you've been poor, is often complicated, right? You know, you're, and so it's it's an element of the story that I haven't ever really explored, but but I'd like to someday, is um, this idea that they're, they're given all this wealth as slaves who are leaving Egypt and immediately they're asked to contribute, right? Immediately they're asked for gold and purple and linen and all this stuff that's that's incredibly precious that they just got. And what does Moshe have to say to them? Stop. Stop giving. You're bringing too much. And I think it's an element of the story we miss, that we just kind of gloss over it, that people who had nothing and we're all of a sudden given a bunch of stuff, could have had a much different reaction to everyone who feels, because it was Kol Nadiv Lev, remember? Everyone who was a voluntary heart. Um, They're going to get taxed to half a shekel that everyone has to pay. But for all this stuff, it was whoever's heart so moves them, right? And Moshe had to say, stop. You're bringing too much. And I think it's a... I think it's to their credit, right? I think the authors are actually, I, th- I think, saying that it's to the people's credit. Because it's not like, oh, well, we have so much now. Of course, we'll be happy to give. That's not usually the relationship to acquisitions once you've, been, once you've lived a life of being deprived. Um, so, so they bring all of this to Moshe. Uh, and, what, and this is the day, right, that it's going to get, they talk about when, when is it completed, uh, when was it finished? When was all of this finished? There's no reason for you to know this, but I'm going to see if we can get there because I think it's fun. So the, the Mishkan is finished, and they're going to have a dedication festival. So anybody want to guess what date this is finished? Think dedication. <laughs> Very good. Two gold stars for Rita Efros. According to tradition... The Mishkan was finished on the 25th day of Kislev. The 25th day of the ninth month. So when the Maccabees are looking for a day to dedicate the cleaned out temple, they pick the 25th day of Kislev. Okay. Because this is well, way before there was a Hanukkah. Yes, yes. So that's how the Maccabees right. could look back, right, to... Right, and, and the Midrashim would have been written already, right, that the Maccabees could, could look at or would have inherited. So what did the rabbis say about how they got all this stuff other than the gold in the middle of the desert? 
because it was from the Egyptians. It no, also I mean, says clothing. Snails. It also says clothing. They oh. they took the purple so from this, the Egyptians. Oh, so all this came from the Egyptians. Yes. And, and the river, the dolphin skin. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not dolphin skin. Um, it's it's just not. Um, so the the word that's used for dolphin uh, is hatchashim. So the there's commentary that suggests it's actually a color. Oh. A t- uh, you know, when you tan hides, there's different colors they turn. And that this most likely is referring to a process and the color that the skin comes out. Not, and I, once, once upon a time I knew <laughs> why, what, what, what the confusion was with dolphin, whatever, but it's, it's most likely. To yes. did the, uh, the golden calf which was a lot of gold that they could have used for the Mishkan. Um, did, they, did they break down the, the golden calf and use, use that? Uh, okay. Did they grind it's it up and drink it? So, <laughs> no, they didn't use it for this. A, that would have been taking something that was pretty much trafe right. and using it right for um, sanctified purposes. But, but B, it, yeah. was, it was ground up and the people had to drink it. It was burned and they had... Because remember, the, the calf probably would have been made of wood. The, the, it's called the golden calf because they, were, they plated it in gold. Um, and so Moshe burned the calf and crushed it and they, following God's instructions, and the people had to drink that stuff. That's the Torah? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and... So it's gone, right? Um, and there, there's beautiful teachings that I really love that the Mishkan is in fact an atonement for the calf, right? So you've, you know how to use gold for idolatry. Now, now here's how you're really supposed to use gold. This, this, is, this is what you're supposed to spend all of your donations on is not building, you know, something huge that represents God. It's building a space where we will have experiences that draw us close to God and God to us. I've forgotten about the the borrowing of the gold. We always joke about how they borrowed it. Was any of that gold given to them as an incentive to get out? I think they're they're all tied together. Okay, but it wasn't all just stolen or taken. Well, it was borrowed. The Egyptians' hearts were disposed favorably to the Israelites as they left, says Torah. <laughs> yeah, as they left. Take it and go. Take it and go. Because remember, we talked about the, the last plague before that is the death of the firstborn. And, and already... So maybe it would stop that. Uh, right. So already the courtiers were already upset with Pharaoh for not getting rid of... Like, just fall, do what they want. Because remember, we talked about the plagues would have lasted probably a year. Um, and so, like, in the middle of that, in the middle of that, they're like, Pharaoh, like, let them go. Right? And, um, and Pharaoh refuses. Right? So the... So my sense is there would have been a growing agitation of the court people and you know anybody connected to knowing why these things are happening. And then they hit the last, right, the absolute, then that's it. You know, once a child in your home, because every home has a firstborn. So every home, every Egyptian home had a, a dead 
person, whether it's a grown-up or a child, and presumably two or three, right? Because you've got three generations living together. The firstborn in each generation of that family would have died. So that, that it's just kind of like, get them out. So I don't think you can separate no. using it as an incentive for them to leave, and yay, they're leaving here some gold. But we certainly couldn't assume that they took it because to have that gold used then in a sacred space would be an abomination too if it uh, no. was stolen. No, apparently it is reparations. Yeah. Okay, oh. reparations. It is repar- for, uh, right. because but it's God who things. says, it's so God who disposes the Egyptians' hearts favorably to the Israelites. Right. God wants them to plunder Egypt and to, to have when they leave. And if you recall, if we go all the way back to Genesis and we, the way we reread Hagar this time mm-hmm. through the lens of Sabina Tuval's work, when we read about the, the Hagar going away, we said it's possible to read it that she's being freed because the law in ancient Israel was you couldn't free a slave without providing for her. her. Yes, especially her. So therefore, it would make sense that if God is freeing the Israelite slaves, God would provide because that's the way you do it, right? And um, Much clearer. Yes. Amy, did you say that it's possible this could be viewed as atonement because the people followed Aaron with the golden calf and now they're saying we made a mistake and we want to show you how loyal and how the reparations are kind so of it's common. so they they owe God some gold right yeah. um, it, the rabbis talk about it more in terms of God giving the people a way to repair the relationship after that breach so we get the second set of tablets that's one way it happens and now we're building a space that's going to house those tablets right so that's. But the people felt guilty that they had done something wrong. So we don't, we we don't know that. But I think there's a relationship between having used their material wealth for idolatry, and God providing them the opportunity to use their wealth for proper worship procedures or whatever. All right. So they bring this stuff to Moshe, uh, who does a full accounting, right, for all of this. All right, we're going to go early to text. Because believe me, it doesn't get a whole lot more exciting than the rest of the first. (laughs) (laughs) So our commentary by Rabbi Pamela Wax is going to begin at actually the first first verse of the Parsha, but it's all related. What we read is exactly related to the first verse. And here it's called Mishkan Ha'edut, which is not the most common way it's talked about. Mishkan Ha'edut, Edut is uh, witnessing. The Mishkan of witnessing. We usually have the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting or the Mishkan. We, and we have the tablets of Edut, the tablets of witnessing. We don't usually say Mishkan Ha Edut. 
So that's one of the things the commentators are going to look at is why is it called Mishkan HaEdut here? But looking at the very first verse, these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of testimony, uh, which were drawn up at Moshe's bidding through the service of the Levites under the direction of Itamar, son of Aaron, the priest. Itamar, one of the surviving sons. Right? He's a priest because he's the son of Aaron, the priest. Uh, and they, he's directing all of this uh, at Moshe's instruction and, and he's been involved in kind of overseeing a lot of this stuff uh, we're told he's, he's uh, according to Rabbi Wax the independent auditor right taking an inventory of all the metals which we and we got a whole list of that before we got to our where we started reading and there's a whole list of everything that's brought and you can see how specific it is 29 talents and 730 shekels of gold that's pretty that's including the decimal points 99.95 right it includes the 90 usually you just round up 100 right but it's very very specific and she asks why such exactitude and then we're going to get a midrash and this Midrash uh, is from Exodus Rabbah on our Parsha. Proverbs, now remember, the game of Midrash is a loving, holy, sacred game that is done by experts in these texts. And when you're an expert in something, you take a violinist who's incredibly talented and, and has practiced for years and years and years and years and years, are they going to have more fun playing Mary Had a Little Lamb or Bach? I don't, we, we can ask Becky. Bach is pretty hard. Okay. So it's hard, but it's fun, right? Like it's more interesting. It's more challenging. It's more, it engages your talents, right? It helps you celebrate, I know this much that I can play this with a lot of practice. So the rabbis, what is their skill? What is their talent? Texts. So that's what they're going to play with. And sometimes it feels hard to us because we don't play with them. We don't get it because we don't have that gift or that practice, right? What's easy for Becky would be torture for us to, to do on the violin. So just remember that as we read it and you're like, wait, what? That's such a stretch. For them, that's the fun. If you have to stretch a little... That's the fun. All right. So there. That's why we're here. That, right, <laughs> right. So they look at textual connections, and because for them it is all revealed by God, it is all by definition related. There's nothing that's written in Torah that's not related to something else written in Torah, God forbid. Our job is to spend our lives making the connections that God has given us this wonderful playground, this wonderful sandbox, and our job is to play. All right, so they look at Proverbs 28.20, and they see a faithful man. That must mean Moshe. That's what Proverbs is talking about. Not just any faithful man. We know, of course, Proverbs is talking about any faithful man, right? But if you're playing the game, right, the faithful man, who is that referring to? Refers to Moshe. How do we know? Moshe, who was made the treasurer 
over the work of the tabernacle. Our rabbis taught, one must not appoint less than two people with control over the finances of a city or a community. But surely you find that Moses was solely in charge. So how could that be? Right? The answer is that though Moshe was the sole treasurer, yet he called others to audit the accounts with him. All right, so what is this Midrash addressing? Leadership, what that should look like. Responsibility. And responsibility. What does responsible leadership look like according to this Midrash? You have a double check to make sure you're honest. You have to have other eyes on every sensitive thing you do dealing with money. And it's not so much that you're worried about the corruption of one person. Because how could that? He was a faithful man. Moshe was faithful. So it's not, the concern is not that Moshe is going to cheat, God forbid. So the rabbis are saying, always have two people in the room counting the money, not because you're worried that one of them is corrupt. Why do you do it? They make a mistake. They could make a mistake. What else? But Moshe, God forbid, wouldn't make a mistake. Which one can act as a check for the other so that they're saying that... uh, uh, nobody's cheating. So, but it suggests that Moshe wouldn't have needed a check because he would never have cheated. Mm-hmm. So, if Moshe wouldn't have cheated, why it's, do you need two people public, in the room? Knowledge. Everybody will know. It's for the community to trust that right. nobody did anything wrong. Witness. Is it transparency? It's about transparency. That's what the midrash is about. That's what the rabbis are addressing. Right? Don't stick. George in a room and ask him to count the money. That's not fair to George. And it's not fair to the people who might, who might decide, wait a minute, I know we raised more money than that. Must be George. And if you always automatically have to have two because it's the custom, then there's no dispute. Correct. Well, and there's no shade thrown on anybody, anybody that, that I, what, you're not going to send Sarah in alone. You don't trust her. Mm-hmm. If there's always two, it's all, everyone just understands. Of course, of course, Sarah wouldn't do anything wrong, but we always have two. That's the rule. Has that custom okay. been carried through uh, to present day or the Middle Ages? Uh, I don't know. With diamond, you know, the diamond trade or whatever. I don't know. That's an interesting question. But but if you look at accepted accounting principles, (coughs) I think that's there. That's, uh, say it again. That it exists today yeah, in it, terms right. of accepted accounting. Yeah. Audits totally need audits. Right. Um, right. And responsibility to the community. I mean, he's actually telling us how to run a temple. Right. Our temple. No, that's right. And, and I guess the only reason I'm pounding it is because it seems obvious. You don't want anyone to steal, and you don't want there to be a mistake. I, that's obvious. And you audit the temple because you want to make sure everything's kosher. What I'm saying is it goes a step further. There was no question about Moshe's integrity or that he would make a mistake, God forbid. It's that it's not good for Moshe and it's not good for the people to cause any anxiety or let there be any doubt. doubt. That's why also they would assume that it's Moshe because everybody knew Moshe was... That's right. That's why he's used in the Midrash. Exactly right. Okay. Another midrash on this verse says, 
that one who entered the temple treasury to take out money might not enter, means they shall not enter, wearing a garment with folds or in felt shoes. Lest in the event of his becoming wealthy, people should say that he became rich from the temple treasury. So if you're going to go in and count money in the temple counting room, you go in a swimsuit. (laughs) With no pockets. pockets. This is before security cameras. Before security cameras. You go in a Speedo. So it is obvious. That that is an image I'm going to not be able to unsee the rest of the day. Um, So that it's apparent, right, that you didn't take anything out with you should you later become extracted. That's why I can't get that image out of my head the rest of the day. So apparently, page two, apparently, Moses had reason to be concerned about unfair suspicions. As imagined by yet another midrash, rumors were already flying. So here is a midrash uh, from... Uh, where is it from? Lesson, Rabbi Lesson. I don't know. Tanhuma. Midrash Tanhuma. All right. Midrash Tanhuma says, why did he make an accounting with them when the Holy One trusted him? Right? Like, wh- why did Moshe say, okay, let's do a full inventory when God didn't ask for it? God trusted Moshe. Why would Moshe then ask for an inventory? Because people didn't necessarily... It was simply that Moses had heard Israel speaking behind his back. And what were they saying? They were saying to his shame, look at the fat neck. Look at the fat thighs. Moses is eating from what belongs to Jews and drinking from what belongs to Jews for everything he possesses comes from the Jews. So if Moshe's living high and large and living super well, and he, who pays his salary? Right? If the rabbi is driving, I got to be yeah. careful now, I guess. <laughs> right? right? The rabbi, what are the rabbis driving in this city? If the rabbi is driving a Ferrari, it would give people some cause to be a little concerned about the relationship between the rabbi and the synagogue budget, right? Okay, so that's what they're saying, that Moshe's paid by the Jews. If he's living that well, something's up. You notice Jews never say living high on the hog. Yeah, no, no, they say look at that fat neck. Look at those fat thighs, right? Of course, in our day, you have to flip it. He's obviously had work done. Look at his thin neck. Look at his thin thighs, right? He can afford a really good plastic surgeon. All right, so, right, cultural context is important. Um, As soon as Moses heard that, he said to them, by your life, after the tabernacle is finished, I am making an accounting with you. Thus it is stated in Exodus 38.21, these are the pikudei of the Mishkan. That Moshe heard the rumors before even it was finished. So to him, so he said, I'll show you, you people who think, right? And we're going to make a full accounting and, a, and there will be full transparency so that Right? Is that like releasing a tax return? <laughs> Something like that. He's a good leader. He doesn't even need to hear the rules. He will know the rules will come. Very, very... Yes. 
very inspired and talented and wise leader says Mehmet would not even wait to hear rumors. They would know the rumors were starting or would come. That it just it's a, a good leader would assume there's got to be criticism. Bert, can you imagine people criticizing the leader? Could you imagine that? Hypothetically, it could happen. We had a long Somewhere. meeting last night. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, financial audits call on our midot that we're going down a couple paragraphs of truth telling, integrity, order, and diligence. Such reflection could compromise our Musar work. That would be enough right here. Musar, remember, we're talking about spiritual characteristics that the Musar tradition is trying to help us cultivate. Um, and so this is a Musar, te- this is a teaching from Musar. And so she's looking at everything, Rabbi Wax is looking at everything through the lens of Musar. So what is the spiritual midah? What is the spiritual characteristic here? She's saying it's, it's accounting, diligence, order, telling the truth. However, cheshbon slash accounting is also a metaphor with a spiritual counterpart well beyond its application to finances. It is what? I heard you say it. Cheshbon. Cheshbon hanefesh. Cheshbon hanefesh is the spiritual work we do before the high holy days. On the, on the holidays, we are to take an accounting of, of ourselves. Right? You know I like to translate nefesh as self. So cheshbon nefesh. We're supposed to get really honest with where we're at. And we're supposed to have the courage to admit where we're wrong and where we are challenged and where we're not living up to our ideals. Because the idea of the High Holy Days is that we then do tshuva so that we get to reset and start over. Because if we don't do the accounting and then do tshuva, we're just going to keep going, right? The whole idea, as hard as that work is, the whole idea is to return us to a place of believing that we can start again, right? I don't know about y'all, but habits that I have that I've had for a really long time, I don't have a lot of hope of breaking. Because when do we actually start an accounting that says, okay, after this, it's a clean slate. New Year's resolution. You going to do it or not still, right? And it's, we don't really believe that anymore. New Year's resolutions, for people who really believe this is the time to start over, they tend to be a lot more effective than those of us who are like, well, maybe sometime in January, right? I'll quit eating fries. When you move or immigrate, you feel that it's more. So there are... There are opportunities that are given to us often by life and a life transition that has us really believe and feel I can start over, right? So when you said emigrate, when you emigrate, you, you're, you're, you're a new person, right? You're, you don't have to be who you were in Turkey. Think about someone transitioning gender. Transitioning gender, coming out, getting married getting divorced, becoming a parent, right? There's things we say, okay, I don't have to be that other person anymore. Certainly as a widow, you, you do that. You, right? So there's sometimes we're forced to do it. There are other times we're, giving an, we're given an opportunity, right, to take advantage of this 
ability to start fact, over. But it's based on the belief that we're capable of change. Hundred percent. That is the basis for Jews. We can. That is where we start. We Our spiritual reality starts with not only can you change, you are responsible for changing. Because if you can change, there's no excuse for continuing to do it the same way. Which is why I think, personally, I mean, I'm going to say this before I thought about it, but I think it's one of the reasons Jews who never come to synagogue come on the high holidays. Now, that's just a hunch. Because I think the power of that is still, it's still powerful, right? That, that, um, that, that idea that, we, that we, there's still hope, that we can change, that we have an obligation to at least think about it, right? Like once a year to really address the possibility of real change in who we are and, and who we choose to be in this world. All right, so let's go to Cheshbon HaNefesh. Now she's going to move to Cheshbon HaNefesh as a spiritual midah. And she says there is a, an analogy of two business people. The first is wealthy with a full warehouse and plenty of customers for his merchandise. How does that person behave? He uses his profits to purchase more storehouses and fill them with even more merchandise. However, he never makes an accounting of his goods, nor does he track trends and sales. That's one, one example. Here's another one. The second person is poor. There is little demand for her merchandise and therefore little profit. Whether her income will offset her expenses creates constant worry. She makes a careful accounting of her records and constantly checks her ledgers. By doing so, she can see which merchandise is most in demand and when it will bring the greatest profit. She does this for at least a year and then reviews her balance sheet to examine her profit margin. And as a result of this bookkeeping, she's able to, learn a, she's able to earn a substantial and comfortable living. And this Musar text goes on to draw the connection between the parable and this Cheshbon HaNefesh. We're each meant to practice in our own spiritual lives this, this accounting with the implied conclusion that a careful review and accounting, even if we start out poor, will ultimately enrich us, while a squandering of spiritual resources will undoubtedly leave us empty. The author states that this accounting is worthwhile. Our honor and life in this world and in the world to come depend on it. Through this cheshbon, this reckoning of the soul, we are keeping track of our soul's growth, which is a way of being accountable both to God and to ourselves. So I, I did not know, but if you drop down to the very last paragraph, this process was based on the earlier work described by Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography. Who knew? Both Franklin and Rabbi Leffen, who was writing from the Musar perspective, Right? For them, the work was an act of keeping a scorecard and quantifying one's successes and violations in regard to each midah. So you have to know the midot. And you have to explore what they mean. And you have to explore what that means in your daily life, obviously. Right? So Musar practice is based on you have to know the midot. If you come to my class, creating lives of something, depth and meaning or something, um, then that's one of the things we're going to be talking about, right? We're going to be exploring some of these midotes. 
and, and, what, and what, is, what does it look like to actually take this into our lives and actually apply it, right? To, so it's applied spirituality, if you will. So consider how you might apply the idea of cheshbon in your own spiritual life. Are you more heavily weighted in one midah than another? Might you be expending too much energy and compassion, for example, and therefore have to rein it in, asserting some gvura, some restraint? How do you infuse some sense of humility or generosity into your nooks and crannies of despair or struggle? I love that. Because I don't know about y'all, but when I go to places of despair or struggle, what do I tend to do? Struggle. This is so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> right? What would it mean to infuse humility and generosity into those places of despair or struggle? Can your sense of gratitude carry you until the next shipment of blessings shows up on your doorstep? Extending the metaphor even further, how might you take your losses and turn them into profits? Right? That's because that's really isn't it where wisdom comes from right like taking those things that have happened to us and rather than seeing ourselves as a victim it's always me how come it always happens to me terrible random horrible thing why does it always happen to me instead right that because that could be the truth that it always happens to me randomly with no meaning but that doesn't create a life of meaning does it? Yeah. It's saying, okay, this happened now, right? A double strangulated hernia. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Surgery again? Really? Okay, so can, can we take that and, and even find it? I'm not saying it happens for a reason. You know that's not me. Mm-hmm. I don't say that. It's not a good thing that this happened. Mm-hmm. It happened, right? Is there a way I can profit no. from that? Yeah. Because it happened, and it sucked. And that's reality, and no one's denying that. I have choices now since it's happened. Do, do I say, okay, um, it, life is terrible, <laughs> or do, or, and here we go again, or do we say, all right, what, what can I take from this that changes me for the better? But isn't that asking an extraordinary from a human nature standpoint, um, uh, change and whatever is very ephemeral. Uh, so asking them to do this is maybe in some ways a little bit unrealistic. Nobody said it was easy. And, <laughs> and I'm going to say spiritual practice. I think healthy, mature, good spiritual practice is always in response to human nature. <clears throat> Our nature is change is ephemeral and it doesn't last. And that's why a regular cheshbon hanefesh could help. Because our inclination is not to change because that's super hard, right? But if a cheshbon hanefesh is a regular thing, how did I do? And you stay with one midah, by the way. You're with one midah for like a month, right? So it's not everything. This month I'm working on patience. <laughs> let's say let's just say oh. let, let's, let's just say so so if I'm working on sablanut on patience then my cheshbon hanefesh every day is about how did I do with patience today 
Where did I feel impatient today? What was underneath that, right? Because often my impatience is about anxiety, anger, right? You know, sadness, right? Often there's something underneath that impatience. Um, It didn't go how I wanted. Oh, that would be about control. And what is the need and desire for control about? Fear, anxiety, safety, vulnerability, right? So you see how a cheshbon hanefesh becomes not... I'm not patient, so I'm going to get patient. It's, it's about exploring our relationship to our own cracks and fissures. Amy, isn't also, isn't she saying that this is about daily self-reflection? Yes. Not about a casual self-reflection. Yes. Yes, it is about... Do this, you've got to do it all the time. It is, a, it is about cultivating a life of taking seriously our own potential for growth and our own commitment to growth, right? And um, people who do Musar don't do it alone, right? You hear Mark Edelstein using the word va'ad a lot, that we have a committee that he's choosing to call va'ad because the va'ad is a council, and it's a council of spiritual practice so that you don't practice in a vacuum. You confess to a va'ad how you did this week about patience because they serve as a body that's going to keep you accountable as well as give you feedback as well as give you support they are witnessing your process and as we all know who've, who've sat in therapy or, or, or in you know, other places with a mentor with a teacher we know what it is to have someone witness our process. That's an incredibly, when it's done with the intention of being only respectful, only helpful, only supportive, that is an incredible privilege to sit with someone's loving attention on your process of growth with no benefit to them at all, right? Other than feeling of service or part of a community, whatever. So, that, so that's the idea of the context in which Musar Happens and where a cheshbon hanefesh would happen. Because once I say it out loud to people who love me and want to see me grow, it helps strengthen my commitment to change. Right? Because it's really hard on our own. Right. Really hard. And ask anybody in a 12 step program. Right? It's really hard to do alone. When people feel anxious or whatever, it's like, I gotta find a meeting. I have to find a place to go be with people who get it, who understand, and that reinforces my commitment to being somebody new, somebody different, to breaking habits, to leaning into serious growth. That's not easy. And it's not pretty. <laughs> like, like, I don't know about y'all, but like, getting honest about like, what's going on and how we behave is like... It's liberating. Maybe Finally. eventually, right? But it's it's really it's really hard. It's really hard. It's great to look at the places that were amazing, <laughs> right? Sure, but it's way harder to look at where am I called into growth because I'm not doing so well in that area in that in some arena. In these cases, it's hard to find a place where you feel you do excel. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's a nook and cranny too. Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, there was, she had some other quote that I really loved about our, our cracks and fissures. Um, but I, um, anyway, so, um, 
So I wanted to leave you with that set of Midrashim. And I want to read to you from Rabbi Arthur Green, who's commenting on the Sfat Emet. The Sfat Emet teaches on our Parsha. You don't have it. Teaches on our Parsha. The Tabernacle of Witness. Mishkan Ha'edut. Right? Sfat Emet knows that's not what it's usually called. That's an engraved invitation for commentary. Right? If it's unusual has to mean something. Why is it called Mishkan Hayidut? Because it witnessed to Israel that God had truly forgiven them for making the golden calf. Because now God was causing God's presence to dwell among them. Why did they need this kind of witness? Because Israel had been deeply disgraced by their sin. Now, God is giving the people the tabernacle as witness in order to strengthen their hearts, to show that they had indeed repaired the damage wrought by their sin. The fact is that Israel are God's witnesses. As it says in Isaiah, you are my witnesses, right? You got to pull another verse from somewhere, right? That's the game. But how is it possible that Israel, who were created to bear witness to God's oneness, could themselves worship idols? This thought caused Israel to neglect their witnessing so that God had to demonstrate that the sin was incidental to who they were. Thus, they really were worthy to witness God just to, I always say to witness to God just as they had been previously. The rabbis, in fact, teach that Israel were not deserving of such a sin. It came upon them only to teach them the way of teshuva. <laughs> I have to love that. It came to teach every person who returns not to let themselves fall too low in their own eyes. For by teshuva, we really are restored to what we were before the sin. That is why Yom Kippur, the day of forgiveness and atonement, is followed by the sukkah another indwelling of God's presence. This gives strength to all who return. Remember, tshuva means return. Telling them they are worthy to have shekhinah dwell among them. It's a beautiful teaching, I think, right, about they no longer felt themselves worthy of being witnesses to God, of God's presence or oneness or whatever. And what he doesn't say is, so what would that result in? Believing. Say more. Not believing at all, just wanting to go off and find something else. Lost. Or find someplace. Lost. Yes, being lost. Death. Death of your spiritual life. It's choosing to feel that you're not worthy versus using it as 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 an opportunity or a tool to bring in God's light and say, okay, I I did this, but I am not this. We've heard that recently. So the, yeah. so the rabbis are saying, they're, they're quoting the Gera Rebbe, this gorgeous spiritual te- te- teacher, who, who's saying there is a danger in feeling unworthy. Mm-hmm. A real danger. Because if you feel you are unworthy of witnessing to the one, why not just go to Vegas? <laughs> or treat people horribly. Or treat people horribly. What? I want to, okay? And I'm unworthy anyway of being, you know, in any way filled with the light of the Holy One. So screw it. 
There's one. Right, that's that's a real danger. Do you know people who act horribly and you know it's out of despair? Yes. yes. You know how much they hate themselves? Or they've been told since they were this high how miserable they are and unworthy they are, and then you see how they behave as adults? Right, that that is what this I think. That's what this Fatimid is talking about, and that's not humility that you're talking. No, about. No, oh my gosh, the opposite. It's almost the opposite. It's the opposite, right? It's I'm so bad, <laughs> I'm so unworthy. What's that joke about? The cantor turns to the rap. You know, ah, oh, they look pray who, on high holidays. Look, I'm nothing. Look, I'm nothing. Look, before, look who thinks they're nothing. <laughs> Right, like a master of the universe, I'm unworthy. The rabbi turns to the cantor, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> so, right, there's an air, there's a, no, I don't want to say arrogance, but maybe, but there, there's a real poison that happens when we truly believe we are unworthy. And the rabbi Yehuda Leibogar is saying, by giving them the mishkan, and f- the important part here is not the mishkan. God gives them the instructions to build the mishkan and then fills it with God's presence. How do you prove to someone you are in fact worthy of my love and attention? You show up and you sit down and you say, I'm here. I want to be with you. It's intimacy. That's what God is giving them. God gives them the mishkan to prove to them that they are worthy of intimacy with God. That, therefore, has them able to move past their own sin and go to a place of tshuva and return so that they may witness the one to the one. And Rabbi Arthur Green says the insight that Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger is bringing is that guilt is the great impediment to true religious life. Right? This was well known to the Hasidic masters. Among the most essential innovations of Hasidism is the insistence expressed here that return to God really does work and that the one who returns is fully renewed in God's presence. And joyful. The real task is to be sure that our witness goes forward, not interrupted by our own sense of inadequacy to the task. If we wait until we are perfect to attest to God, we will never do our work. So this Shabbat, yes? May we find that strength and patience and courage and hope and inspiration, right? To approach our own melacha, our own work, right? The tasks of building the tabernacle were were called melacha. And uh, may we see our lives as sacred um, works. At the end of our portion, it said that Moshe blessed them. Is that the only time that he blessed them? I don't recall too many other events. I'm just thinking how, mm-hmm. I quote this from the commentary too, God blessed the world after he created it. So is this blessing significant or is it just like another blessing? Is it because they have been transformed or something momentous happened just now? I mean, I think for sure even the biblical text sees this moment Right, as a moment of completion, of a, of a process, right? Moving from the golden calf to the breaking of the tablets. A lot of people got dead. <laughs> a lot of people drank some really nasty wooden cow. And 
Then they, they have the instructions to build the Mishkan. They bring their stuff. They, they build the Mishkan. They make the Mishkan. And nah, nah, nah. So I think it is appropriate, even in the biblical text, that Moshe blesses them, right? That this is a, this is a big moment. And we're ending the book of Exodus, right? We are, we are closing a chapter in the history of the people. So I think even biblically, they, they get it, that this is a big moment and blessing feels appropriate. I think for sure the rabbis go to, now that they have completed tshuva, right, they will experience blessing. Because, that, because that's the reality, right? Torah always describes reality say the rabbis and the reality is when we have the confidence to do the work of return when we have the courage to do the work of tshuva and we do come back then God's presence fills our lives right we are a mishkan me'at we are the small mishkan God's presence fills us and the result is always then blessing blessing Blessing. This return is really also about building self-esteem. Is that what she's saying here? Yeah. In other words, if you think you're less than, you're going to do things that are less than. Yes. And if you think you're worthy, you will lead better. You will behave as someone who believes they're worthy. So maybe that... We will, we will, we will. The people who come to High Holy Days um, as one of those who came to High Holy Days but now does a little bit more. Um, I think it's, you know how they tell you to drink eight glasses of water a day, Mm -hmm. but like you don't. So so you're thirsty. So there's, there's no, no medical second. Yeah. Okay, so that's an old thing. I think he gets a nephrology. Okay. It's, a, it's, a, okay. it's garbage. I'm glad, to, I'm glad to hear. But as one who doesn't drink you get thirsty. And I think if you live your whole year without any religious practice, that when those holidays come, you come with a thirst. <laughs> and that's, I think, why people show up that wonderful, you know, that time of year, because I think it quenches something for them. Right, I think that's 100% true. What I'd like to see people get to is never getting so thirsty, they get a headache. <laughs> if you drink regularly, they say if you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Right, right? so, so you what? And you are. Look at y'all. You are so hydrated. If you're looking at this, in relationship to the golden calf. And they're both stories have a relationship between structure and the unlimited or God or whatever mm-hmm. relationship between the two and what is that relationship. I mean, is, is, are these middo aspects of what led to the golden calf? The corrections of the tendency of human nature to move into a relationship of structure and God in one form versus the specificity of, yes. Of, like, it's almost the more specific it gets, the more unlimited it can be. So they, the the things that lead them to worship gold filled with stuff, wood, right? Gold filled with wood. The, we are given corrections for that to build. What is the ark? A box covered in gold. A wooden box covered in gold that is empty at the center. And what are they supposed to put in that emptiness? 
The Torah. The, the tablets. The teachings. That's what's supposed to be at the empty center are the teachings about how to live a life of goodness and compassion and justice and righteousness and forgiveness, right? So 100% the structures are over and against each other, 100%. And, and, and I think people miss that nuance a lot, right? That it is all about the structures because the problem isn't the structure. It's what the structure represents. And the Mishkan is there to build a <coughs> space that delineates Emptiness. And these Mido actually practices to keep a distinction. Yes, because we tend towards the calf. It's comfortable, it's familiar, it's easy. It's way easier to go shopping than to see why I might be feeling anxious or empty, or, or you know, not empty in a bad way, you know, the ways that make us nervous, right? So um, it's way harder, and the Midot are there to support the work of asking, do you really need another pair of shoes? Let's just say. Um, (laughs) Right? Is that that really... If if you do, okay, then go buy shoes and make sure you get a good deal and whatever. But but is that really what's happening here? And, and, And cultivating an awareness of what motivates us towards the calf is the work of a lifetime. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.